Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Good morning. I got my coffee up here with me, and I have cough drops in my pocket. Um, Last Sunday, you may recall, Pastor Robin spoke, did a wonderful job, and uh, he said that he was losing his voice, and he wasn't sure if he was going to make it. Robin managed to pass that crud along to me. Uh, so thank you very much, Robin. I appreciate it. But unfortunately, Robin got it from Finney, who had it three weeks ago. And I don't know what it is with the preachers losing their voice. There may be a signal here from on high or something. I'm not, I'm not sure. Wes and Catherine, Gary and Linda, so good to see you guys. Um, these are dear friends. Um, Wes and Catherine, pastor, uh, just recently retired from uh, Bethel and uh, Bethel Baptist Church in downtown Everett, and are partners in planting All Saints Church. Uh, it's our second uh, Anglican church plant. Uh, and then Gary and Linda, goodness sakes, you guys go back so long with the cranes. Uh, so good to, uh, to see you guys today. And uh, uh, Gary just shared with me their... Um, it, Greg's your youngest, isn't he? Um, Greg and his wife just lost their their baby at like about six weeks, or excuse me, six months of pregnancy. So um, may the Lord be with um, them and uh, with uh, with you folks as well. These guys are unfortunately for us, but fortunately for you, moving to Texas. Um, so you know, if you want to move to a red state, Idaho's a whole lot closer. It's just. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. You're following Michael, I think, down there. So anyway, welcome. Um, those of you that know these guys, uh, make sure that you, um, you, you greet them because this is probably the last time we'll, we'll see you before, uh, before you head down there. Um, some other news. Um, Paul Anderson usually sits in first service, right, uh, down front near Henry here. And um, Paul, just over a week ago, was mowing the grass at the Rock and Gem Club where you make that turn on uh, 196th and, uh, and suffered a heart attack and passed away almost immediately. Uh, and so we feel um, very badly for Gloria and the family. We don't have word yet of a service for Paul, but encourage you to remember his family in prayer. Paul was involved in a number of ways uh, in our community. Uh, and then finally, I was accosted in the lobby by Liz and Roy asking me if I had watched the coronation yesterday. And I told, this, th- this, is a, this is a confession for you all, okay? Um, I told the folks in the first service, Liz and Roy, that um, when I watched the coronation, I saw that it was four hours long. So I didn't watch the four hours, but I, I found on Sky News that they had clips, so I kind of got the most important points. But it was four hours long, and I thought about the I thought about King Charles and Queen Camilla coming from Buckingham Palace, and then in the in the carriage, and then going in, and the service lasting for hours, and then the procession and recession back, and. I told the people in the first service, I have something called the crane stomach. And the crane stomach makes it unpredictable when I need to use the men's room. And I thought, how in the world did they do that for four hours? Um, I, okay, am I the only one that wondered? I mean, 
you got this whole place full of people for four hours. I, I, I know I'm the only one that thinks that way. That's, I, I know. I bet none of you ever thought about where the astronauts go to the bathroom either. None of, none of you have ever, none of you have ever thought of that. Okay, are you ready to dig in? Good. So if you could open your Bibles and or your laptops or your devices or your phones or whatever works for you. And we are going to continue our study in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're talking about Paul's letter to the American church. For those of you that are new today, we, we recognize that if I tried to do Paul's letter to the American church, it would kind of be Barry's letter to the American church. So we decided to apply 1 Thessalonians and I uh, think we'll get a little closer to truth uh, that way as well. So if you want to, as I say, open your, um, your Bibles and follow along, that would be great. We're going to start about 2.17 and go into the first few verses of chapter 3. So when I was 14, I got a, a driver's license, a learner's permit. I grew up in Alberta, Canada, Western Canada. And I drove a lot with my learner's permit. And when I was 16, got my license. And uh, I love driving. And my uncle Henry visited from California. And Henry had one of those... Even when I was uh, even when I was 16, it was a little bit older. Lincoln Continental from the early 60s. Do you remember what those looked like, Bob? Those were those were chrome boats. They were gigantic, and when you sat in them, you just kind of going over the road, you know, like this. It was it was amazing. So. Uncle Henry asked me if I wanted to drive, and in those days, I wanted to drive, well, I still do, um, want to drive anything I could. And so, um, so I said, sure. So I, I drove it, and he shared with me a story about his car, and, and I was absolutely blown away. I, I couldn't believe um, my uncle would, would say this, but I guess I should have known it. But he talked about, they lived in La Mirada, California. Does that sound familiar to you, Jack? Um, Jack has a master's degree from Biola University uh, in La Mirada. And anyway, they lived in La Mirada, and he was telling me this story of driving along in this big chrome boat, this monster heavy car, and some guy had pulled out in this California road, had pulled out a little bit far, and, uh, and, and so Henry would have needed to have stopped or to have gone around. But Henry decided he would just come boring straight down on this guy. And when the guy realized that Henry wasn't stopping, wasn't slowing, he jammed it into reverse, squealed the tires, backed up, and crashed into a guy behind him. And Henry thought this was funny. And, and, I'm, a, and I'm a kid, you know, I'm just a kid, and I think, there's something wrong with him. I mean, seriously, seriously, there's something wrong with him. Normal people don't take joy in causing this kind of damage to somebody else by being a bully. I mean, that's what he was doing, was being a bully. And I should have known it, because I remember when I was younger, I must have been four or five years old. I know I was just a little guy, but it's one of my early traumatic memories, and the early traumatic memory was of my mom putting me to bed. And I don't know about your grandchildren, but my grandchildren um, don't always listen to their parents. Do your grandchildren always listen to their parents? <laughs> uh, sort of adult, yeah. 
Yours do, Bob. Thank you. If you could help me after the service to know how to talk to my children about, I'd, I'd appreciate that. So anyway, but in those days, children mostly obeyed their parents. And mom told me to go to bed, and they were stand, sitting up talking. And, but I called for her from the bedroom. I'm in this strange house in a strange place. I'm a little boy. But instead of my mom coming, Uncle Henry shows up. And Uncle Henry scares the living daylights out of me. I mean, he was just mean. He was just incredibly mean. And I didn't call for my mom anymore because I didn't want Henry to show up anymore. And, and I think that was his intention. That was, you know, he, and he succeeded. But I discovered as I got older, that's the kind of person that he was. And he wasn't a very nice person and he didn't treat my aunt very well. But in that moment, as a little kid, I felt torn away from my mother. This guy, this mean uncle, was the interloper who had taken me away from my mother. And it was so traumatic that all these years later, I still remember that event as a child. And the passage that we're looking at today, beginning in verse 17, says, but since we were torn away from you, since we were torn away from you. So the scripture, the, the, the picture that Paul gives is being torn away from Thessalonica, from the Christians in Thessalonica. He's been torn away. He doesn't talk about just leaving them, departing, saying goodbye, farewell. He was torn away from them. Now in the whole scheme of things, my issue with Uncle Henry was relatively minor. I eventually went to sleep, no doubt, woke up the next morning, but I remember it to this day. As I got older, I understood the pain of being torn away. I did a doctorate at Fuller Seminary, and when I was in Pasadena for some coursework, um, I thought it would be a great idea on my weekend off to go to Disneyland because I had a five-year-old and a three-year-old at home. And I thought I would go to Disneyland and take pictures for them. And then, and then we as a family could plan a family vacation. I went to Disneyland. It was one of the worst days of my life because I was taking pictures all the time thinking, oh, they would love this. Oh, that ride. Oh, that would just be something that Sean and Ryan at that time, the two boys, oh, they would just love doing that. It was miserable being torn away from the family in that, in that circumstance. But it was far worse, far more traumatic when my dad died. And I was fairly young, and I was literally torn away from him in relationship. But, but my tearing wasn't as bad as what my mom went through. We would go visit mom for two years after dad passed away. And, and we would visit her, we would have a nice visit, and then she would stand outside on the patio of her place. And as we got in the car to leave, she would cry. And it was like, oh, man, it just felt so awful. And then as we pull away, it was that torn away experience again. I can remember loading up the car with the boys, Barb and I heading out, mom crying, and pulling through the parking lot, turning back around, coming back around, saying, mom, please come home with us. Her experience of being torn away from dad was so profound in her life. We're discovering that this painful loneliness, this tearing away, 
is not an unusual experience. So we have pretty clear data that social connection has dramatically declined during our time. I, I want to show you some charts here. And one of the first things in presentation is never show people things they can't actually read, right? But, <laughs> but what, I, what I want you to see is not, you don't have to read anything, but what I want you to see is the trends that you have here. So social isolation has gone up dramatically. That's the box on the upper left-hand corner. And then everything else, household, family, social engagement, companionship, social engagement with friends, non-household family social engagement, social engagement with others, all of them plummeting, all of them plummeting. The next one shows the cost that this has in our lives. John, if you bring up the next chart. So lacking social engagement is as dangerous as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day or drinking six alcoholic beverages a day. It has a profound effect on our health. And then we also find the final chart is you get an idea of what's happened to marriage in the United States. The, the original number there, the highest point is about 1965, uh, when about 85% of there were newly married people per 1,000 unmarried people in the population. And now we're down in 2020, down to about 30%. So loneliness has become a problem of epidemic proportions. And at North Sound here, we have widows and widowers and those struggling with dementia and caregivers and people experiencing divorce and those with estranged children and young folks in our midst who you all have your own challenges as well. Vivek Murthy is the United States, United States Surgeon General. It's the second time that he has been in this office. And uh, <coughs> he, he recently talked about his own bout with loneliness when he left office as the Surgeon General of the United States the first time around. And you would think a guy like that with all of those connections wouldn't experience loneliness, but he tells a different story. He said, a patient of mine once shared with me a most unusual story. He had worked for years in the food industry with a modest salary and humble lifestyle. Then he won the lottery. Overnight, his life changed. He quit his job and moved into a large house in a gated community. Yet as he sat across from me, he sadly declared, winning the lottery was one of the worst things that ever happened to me. Wealthy but alone, this once vivacious social man no longer knew his neighbors and had lost touch with his former co-workers. He soon developed high blood pressure and diabetes. He said, I thought of this story in 2017 when I found myself struggling with loneliness. My first stint as Surgeon General had just ended. I was suddenly disconnected from colleagues with whom I had spent most of my waking hours. It might not have been so bad had I not made a critical mistake. I had largely neglected my friendships during my tenure, convincing myself that I had to, myself that I had to focus on work and I couldn't do both. Even when I was physically with the people I loved, I wasn't present. I was often checking the news and responding to messages in my inbox. After my job ended, I felt ashamed to reach out to friends I had ignored. I found myself increasingly lonely and isolated, and it felt as if I was the only one who felt that way. Loneliness, like depression, 
which, with which it can be associated can chip away at your self-esteem and erode your sense of who you are. And that's what happened to me. He goes on to say this about the consequences of loneliness. So when people are socially disconnected, their risk of anxiety and depression increases. So does their risk of heart disease. It goes up by 29%. Dementia goes up by 50%. Stroke goes up by 32%. The increased risk of premature death associated with social disconnection is comparable to smoking daily and may even be greater than the risk associated with obesity. I want you to look at the words and the strength of the words that are used by Paul to talk about his own loneliness and his anxiety. This is the guy that tells us elsewhere, don't be anxious about anything, right? And, and now here in this passage, he's just being honest with the church in Thessalonica. And he says these words, when I could bear it no longer... When I could bear it no longer. He says it twice. He says we in the first case. And in the second case, he says I. We could do a sermon, a whole sermon series on anxiety and the challenge that it is to us here, but also uh, the younger generation, the incredible levels of anxiety in that generation. Too many of us are lonely, anxious, or depressed any one time, one out of two Americans is experiencing loneliness. So what do we do about this as followers of Jesus? Well, it's important, I think, for us to understand and to remember the truth of Scripture that Jesus is a friend who is closer than a brother. So we need to remind us of the truth of Scripture. How is Jesus close? Well, he's close through the Spirit of Jesus or the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is described by Jesus himself as the paraclete or one who is called alongside to help or otherwise referred to as the comforter. We can also look for help from those who have looked at those who are struggling with loneliness and some things that they have found helpful, including these different elements here. Many people feel lonely in older adulthood. It's not unusual for that to take place, especially in those 60s and older. Loneliness is not inevitable, even if you live alone. It's suggested that we pay attention to our thoughts. Negative one-sided thoughts make the experience of loneliness worse. Look for new connections in the community with a small investment in organized activities. Nurture the relationships that you currently have. Consider new ways to make a contribution. It was fun in the first service down here on the front row. Kelly Otto was sitting with two little ones. I don't know if you could see that, John, from where you were back there, but she had two little ones. And Kelly took a break during COVID, and we missed her so much. And it was so cool to see Kelly back with these little ones uh, on her knee in the first service. And this service, she's actually in the nursery watching the, watching the little ones. And, and it's so cool because that's her place, and that's where she has connection with the little ones and with family. One of the great ways we connect and restore social connection is by engagement, by serving, by making a difference in the lives of others. It's also suggested we use technology with purpose. We use it for connection instead of making us feel bad. 
you know, me, I, I uh, disabled my Facebook account years ago. And it's embarrassing for me because I was a big advocate of you all getting on Facebook. I thought, what a wonderful way to connect. But what the studies are showing us is it, is it actually makes us feel worse connection-wise than better because everybody else's family looks like they're perfect and everybody's doing great, only we know the reality of our own families and it ain't that way. Pardon my, pardon my grammar. But we can use social networking. Facebook can be used for good, but we can use social networking to stay in touch. And then finally, rethink your routines to guard against negative effects, seeks opportunities for physical uh, engagement and other health behaviors. But I think there's sort of a, I, I don't know if a pastor can use a, a card game illustration. Um, so maybe some of you can explain to me exactly what this means afterwards, but an ace in the hole, I, I've heard that, right? An ace in the hole. Jack, you probably know what that means. Um, no? Okay. Um, so an ace in the hole, as I understand it, I'm hoping that I got this right, but an ace in the hole is where you kind of have something that you're holding back that's kind of the, the, going to be the answer to the solution to whatever you're faced with. Am I, those of you that, am I, thanks, Crystal. I appreciate that affirmation. Do you play cards, Crystal? No? Yeah? Okay, good. At your assembly of God grandfather's house? Oh, my goodness. Oh. Okay. That explains a lot, Jeff. Yeah. So, just forget the ace in the hole illustration. Uh, the Christian response, I think the most powerful Christian response to loneliness, to anxiety, to depression, is community. If you look around the room, these are your brothers and sisters. And I know on Sunday morning, um, when Casey says, could you greet everybody, you, you sort of oblige by, hello, I'm Fred, and I'm Jane, and you know that. But really, the people that are around you are the answer to a lot of these challenges that we face. And that is the social reconnection that we need. I want you to see how Paul refers to it here. Notice the words that are used. In 2.17, he refers to them as brother. In 2.17, he talks about the desire to be face to face. Zoom apparently wouldn't work for Paul. Got to be face to face. And then in 3.1 and 3.7, he says brothers again. Um, when I grew up, um, when, I, when I grew up in the church, um, and, and I kind of like this, when I grew up in the church, um, the men were called brother and the women were called, were called sister. How many of you had any kind of an, yeah, I see a few hands out there. And it was really good and it was really warm because, because brother was an affirmation and sister was an affirmation of the fact that this is God's forever family. And we're going to, you know, what is it the guy said to live above with saints we love? Oh, that will be glory to live below with saints we know. That's quite another story. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, um, we, are, we are indeed God's body. We're the people that God has brought together. And we are the answer together in community for what the Lord has for us as a solution to loneliness, to anxiety, to depression. We are to be a community of love, brothers and sisters who 
while broken ourselves, it's important to remember, while broken ourselves, choose to help others in the journey as we seek healing and wholeness as well. When we planted Holy Trinity Edmonds, which uh, Wes was before, a couple of years before we planted All Saints Church with Wes up in Everett, we asked what kind of church Edmonds needed. We, we thought about doing the typical thing, which was to take 30 people and send them half an hour away. And we said, no, we think God's calling us to plant an orthodox liturgical church, meaning a, a church that worships liturgically like Lutheran, um, Episcopal, Roman Catholic, etc. Um, but so many of those churches have gone so far left theologically that we want them to we want them to have a church in the midst of that liturgical worship that worships God in orthodox theology. That is that is traditional Christian perspective, traditional Christian theology. And so we planted Holy Trinity and. Um, and I see here the warmth that Paul has as he refers to his church in Thessalonica because it's how I feel myself to Holy Trinity Edmonds. I feel just like Paul when he said, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So last Sunday... Afternoon, about three o'clock, I drove over to Holy Trinity Edmonds, jumped in a van with Pastor Ryan, Pastor Steve, and a couple from the church, and we drove to Joint Base Lewis McCord for an ordination service for a staff member that Holy Trinity Edmonds has who is in a two-year period of getting work experience uh, before becoming a, a full-time active-duty Army chaplain. And as a Navy chaplain, it was a joy for me to go down and uh, to be a part of that, that gathering of folks down there. Uh, and it was just so cool to reflect that day upon our relationship as we went down. And as I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, Holy Trinity Edmonds has had 59 baptisms since they were planted in 2014 right here in downtown Edmonds. And I'm so excited, and I share in that, in that joy that the passage talks about that we have in the context of relationships. Well, I'm running out of time, so let me move on quickly to the second thing that we see in this passage, and that is called affliction. Chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. That no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, just as you know. So as I began to study this passage, I thought affliction here was garden variety of affliction, the kind of stuff that all of us go through, the, the, just the junk that comes up in the lives of everyone that we have to deal with. But I realized in studying the passage further that the affliction that is referred to here is actually persecution. The affliction was specifically persecution of the church in Thessalonica. And I came to realize that this, and I, and I then began to think about our 21st century perspective on persecution. Because in American culture today, in the 21st century, there are many folks who are claiming persecution as Christians in the United States. And I have to say that I understand some of 
what is being shared because our values as followers of Jesus have been under attack and challenged at many levels, especially in blue states like ours. But it's important, I think, to put it in context to realize we have the complete freedom of worship. Nobody compelled you to come here today and nobody said you couldn't come here today. In most places, we have the freedom as Christians to offer our perspective on what's happening in our communities. In most cases, we have the freedom to take our complaints to the courts and have the courts deal with them. And perhaps importantly, none of you, as far as I know, have been fed to the lions. But unfortunately, if we listen to some of our brothers and sisters, we would come to believe that we're making a last stand for the Christian faith. We're under attack. But the truth is, we've probably never had such great freedom to practice our faith as we do now. But there's a danger that we confront today, and that is that our fellow Christians will be motivated by fear. And when we're motivated by fear, we have a tendency to strike out with anger. There's the classic illustration of the animal that is put into a corner. And, and you know how the, in, in that classic illustration, the animal that is in a corner, that's cornered, has to come out fighting. And, and if we believe we're in a situation in America where we're cornered as Christians, the tendency is to want to come out with anger and to, to come out fighting. We have to be careful not to live in fear and to angrily push back at others who see it differently. John says this, he says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love, we love because he first loved us. Makoto Fujimura wrote a book called Culture Care in 2017, and he tells a story from the book To Kill a Mockingbird. I, I bet some of you probably had to read that in high school, yeah, To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, Craig, is that what made you become attorney? You read it, To Kill a Mockingbird? Oh, no. no, okay. That was uh, Craig, who was on the worship team this morning as a public defender, and uh, Atticus Finch is the key guy in this story. And of course, I have a picture from the movie here with Gregory Peck. But Atticus Finch is defending a black man accused of rape. Scout is the daughter of Atticus, and she enters the fray. And we read this. Um, we read a mob gathers. Scout, Jen, and Dill walk right into that circle, making Atticus quite nervous. Scout then recognizes a face in the crowd. Don't you remember me, Mr. Cunningham? I'm Jean Louise Finch. You brought us some hickory nuts one time, remember? I go to school with Walter. He's your boy, ain't he? Ain't he? Fujimura observes, Atticus taught her empathy. She uses it to tap into his conscience his awareness of how human beings should treat each other with dignity and respect. The situation is diffused and the lynch mob does not prevail. Fujimura makes a larger observation that I think, friends, is so important for all of us. He says the temptation to dispense a rough justice 
against some individual or group flares up whenever we lose our focus on our common humanity and succumb to fear. I like the way Sheldon Von Aachen puts it when he says, the best argument for Christianity is Christians. The best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyless, when they're self-righteous and smug in complacent consecration, when they're narrow, repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, at Edmonds United Methodist Church, um, somebody during the Sunday morning service went to the cars in the parking lot and put uh, a flyer underneath all of the windshield wipers. And uh, someone sent me uh, a picture uh, of the flyer, and uh, it, was, uh, it was very anti-transgender, but it was also, um, uh, one could consider pornographic in what was portrayed in this. And uh, we don't see things around human sexuality the same as our friends at Edmonds United Methodist Church do. But it's important for us to understand that this kind of way is not the way to win the battle for truth. When COVID happened, we had to make decisions as a church and uh, around what we were going to do. And the elders met and decided we would follow public health guidance. And we did that because we weren't we weren't physicians and we, we didn't know what was best for people and we'd never experienced this before. But unfortunately, in making that decision, it was perceived by some as being political. It, it, there was no political motivation at all on our part, but it was perceived that way. And so, interestingly, during COVID, we lost people on the left who thought we were too conservative and we lost people on the right who thought we were too liberal. Uh, the, the middle is a very difficult place to find yourself. What we have discovered during this time is that we're living in a time of conflict in our nation and political identities have tended to rise to the surface and almost supersede our spiritual identities. In a New York Times poll, one in five voters say that politics has hurt their friendships or family relationships. How can we bridge this gap? How, how can we as followers of Jesus Christ do something different? For starters, we need more Little League. <laughs> Ethan, uh, our grandson, is uh, seven years old and Thomas is five. And uh, we were at soccer yesterday and saw Joe and Haley over there. We sometimes see Grandma and Grandpa as well uh, at those games. You guys must have taken the day off, John. Uh, oh, <laughs> okay. So 
uh, it's fun to watch what happens. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. So when you follow the national news, um, we talk about blue states and red states. We're at each other's throats. We, we disagree. Um, we read opinion pieces, you know, and, and, and we genuinely worry about what's going on. But when you go to a little league game, so soccer in the morning and, and little league baseball in the afternoon, and friends, you know what? When you go to a little league game, there are people there with umbrellas that are willing to share them. And people with coffee or hot chocolate in a thermos that will share. And you talk about the weather and you talk about the game and you talk about what's happening good in the community and what's going on in your family. And you know what? You don't know the politics of the other person. And in that moment, you really don't care. Because you're just being community. You're just being folks. You're just being people who have gotten together. Friends, I believe that we need to rediscover what it means to be there for each other. And healing the national, vi- the national divide, I believe, doesn't begin in Washington, D.C. It begins across the back fence. Healing the national divide doesn't start in Washington, D.C. It happens across the back fence. I think when, as Christians, we're kind, when some people perhaps will have an opportunity to share deep reasons with those who are watching the Little League game or the soccer game or working together on a community project or at the Edmonds Arts Festival or you name it, we may actually have a reason to share why we love people who are unlike ourselves. Jesus is serious when he declares this. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Finally, and very quickly as I close, Um, we need to be reminded that in the face of affliction, we are victorious over Satan. It's too easy to see the Democrats as our enemies or to see the Republicans as our enemies. But Paul talks about the work of Satan. He says, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. A little later, he says, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor is in vain. Friends, here's what we need to remember in Ephesians chapter 6. It's not the Democrats who are in our enemies. It's not the Republicans who are enemies. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. We need to remember that people in our communities that have a different approach are not our enemies. We're in a spiritual battle. And we need to be careful, however, of overestimating the power of the enemy. C.S. Lewis writes, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, 
The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both heirs and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Perhaps the most important thing, friends, is to remember from John chapter 4, verse 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is greater, say it with me, is greater than he who is in the world. Say it again with me. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word, which again is a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway. And I ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts from this passage, that we would not live in fear, but that we would experience in our lives love and joy and peace that are so contagious that others want to know the source and that we can share about you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, having talked about our work in the world, we can do what we do because of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so, we invite you to join us for this time in which we experience the closeness of God with his presence coming to us in his broken body and his shed blood. This is not the table of North Sound Church. It's the Lord's table. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you to join us. I'll be starting over here with Roy and Liz and then come to the center section and then over here as we remember communion together. We prepare our hearts for communion by looking at our vertical relationship with God and making sure things are okay there and our horizontal relationship with others. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me and I'm going to ask you to take a moment and look deep into your own hearts in terms of whether there's something within those relationships that you need to come before the Lord and bring before him and deal with. And then we're going to do a corporate prayer of confession together. So friends, let's humbly confess our sins to Almighty God. Join together in the prayer of confession. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against our word and deed. What we have done and by what we have left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and earnestly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. The glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of his great mercy hath promised forgiveness of sins to all those who with hearty repentance and true faith turn unto him, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness and bring you to everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 
The words of institution for our service come from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we read, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.